Hello and welcome to Dairy Dialogue 101. And that doesn't mean that it's a basic university course. It means we're well into the third year of the podcast. And I think I can safely say that it's the number one podcast produced in our village, probably because it's the only one. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I survived the excitement of the 100th episode, deflated the balloons to reuse for the 200th, and enjoyed the two days of sunny weather we had in the past week. And I think summer is officially over. We went from a beautiful summer day to it feeling like winter. And that pretty much coincided with the mood as coronavirus restrictions are starting to bite again as the numbers seem to be rising, not just here, but in a lot of places. So I'm really unsure whether there'll be any travel for the remainder of the year. We'll just have to wait and see. I'm sure there'll be many more changes over the coming months. It's not looking good for trick-or-treating at the end of next month, so I've already mentioned that to my son, who was a bit disappointed, but at least I won't have to buy a costume that will only be worn once, and buy all kinds of candy that's meant to be given to other people, but you always buy too much and end up with enough to get through to Christmas. Speaking of Christmas, there's a lot of Christmas products in the stores already here. I'm not really feeling that festive at the moment, I must say. Anyway, it was a busy week with lots of interviews done and still another five to do this week before the weekend when I'm hoping to go walking again. I had a bit of a disaster this week as I chose a hike that was pretty miserable. I'm sure the rest of the family will forgive me within a couple of years. Before we get to this week's news, and there's a lot as seems to be the case recently, I'll let you know who's on the show this week. And we have four guests in three interviews. We chatted with Robin Eilander, Senior Project Manager, Microbiology and Food Safety at NISO, the second time she's been on the podcast, and to Keith Laws, VP of Sales and Marketing at Casper's Ice Cream, and two people from Kerry, Celia Ride, Senior Technologist, and Yanka Reka, Strategic Marketeer for Beverages with Kerry Europe and Russia. And of course, we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from StoneX. So let's take a look at a few of the news stories you may have missed from around the world of dairy this week. One of Fonterra's sites in New Zealand is transitioning to pellet power. Ornua is reducing plastic and cheese packaging by 40% with Megablock. And a bit like waiting an hour for a bus and then two come at the same time, there have been two pretty big acquisitions related to dairy this week. Lectali is buying Kraft Heinz's natural cheese division and Christian Hansen is acquiring Yenavine Biotechnology. Possibly to make it easier for people like me to say it, the Lithuanian dairy company Vilkiškiu Pienina has changed its name to Vilvi Group. And apologies to anyone from Lithuania listening for me butchering the name of that company. Elmhurst 1925 has launched plant-based Elmhurst Creamery New Fashioned Soft Serve Ice Cream Mix, which trips off the tongue neatly. There are some new Valio products in Finland and the company is using less plastic. Fonterra announced its financial results. Nestle Jamaica signed an agreement with Dairy Industries Jamaica Limited. And one I enjoyed, perhaps because sometimes I'm a bit of a science geek, was a Singapore university group has been using powdered milk for 3D printing. Friesland Campina is to supply sustainably produced milk to other dairy companies. Dairy UK has a new chairperson. And there are also stories on Listeria, dairy product labelling in the EAEU, and a whole lot more on DairyReporter.com. (music) 
So let's start on this week's interviews. Dutch food research and knowledge company Niso has announced the publication of a peer-reviewed paper outlining a practical method for determining bacterial spore concentrations in cocoa powders. And to tell us more about what this means is Robin Eilander, Senior Project Manager, Microbiology and Food Safety at Niso. So I, I wonder if before we talk about what you did and, and the consortium, because there's some pretty big names in there, yes, as well as your own. But I wonder if you could sort of give me a, an outline of what the problem was that you were addressing in the first place. Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess a couple of years ago, we actually also spoke. We had a similar project which was directed towards bacterial spores in milk powders. And that's basically where the idea came from. So it's very much a similar approach and objective, but just a very different type of ingredient. So we noticed that with every ingredient, it poses their own specific challenges when it comes to microbial safety and quality. And when it comes to the techniques that are being applied to investigate that, there's no translation of 100% from one to the other. So... We did an inventory amongst food and beverage production companies and also ingredient suppliers. That was, I think, in about 2016, where we looked at where the interest in the market lies when it comes to, for instance, bacterial spores in pea protein or soy and also cocoa powder. And at that time, the latter topic really generated the best support for setting up a pre-competitive consortium. So very much directed towards enumeration of spores and the issue that we encounter with spores when it comes to them being present in a food ingredient like cocoa powder. So I guess after that we started with a definition phase and uh, we had commitments like you said from three different cocoa suppliers and three cocoa buyers at that time. We performed an inventory on the methods that they used available knowledge and best practices that are already present in the consortium and also, of course, relevant issues that they encountered when it came to spores. And together with these companies, we defined the scope of the project. So that was all very much based on joint needs. Um, That's how the consortium came to existence. And during that phase, it was also um, mentioned by the companies that were already committed that it would be really of added value to have Tetra Pak involved as well. So that is how Tetra Pak joined as well but they joined after the definition phase so they joined in um, in phase two and what do the different partners bring to this consortium in terms of how it all works so every company that was involved in this consortium they contributed both financially and also with in-kind contributions and then you can think about delivering materials that we needed to execute the project but also pre-generated data and knowledge that was already available with them a lot of knowledge on their own best practices and experiences. And then during the actual execution of the project, they also contributed by performing the ring test. So we set up a method together with all of the information that we had within the consortium. And then we gathered cocoa powders and we tested them. And then all of the companies tested the exact same method on the same powders to see where any variability uh, would lie in the execution. And from that point onwards, we optimized a few things. So all of the companies were involved in that. And NISO coordinated the consortium, also executed activities, analyzed and interpreted the results. And we also eventually wrote the manuscript for which every company had one lead author 
that was involved in the uh, content of the manuscript and the reviewing of everything. What is the end method that you decided upon and how long did it take? Can you give me a bit of a, a run through of the amount of work that was involved in this? Yeah, so I guess we did not start from scratch. Uh, so there are already many methods available within the market that are being executed. And what we know from experience is that you will always get differences in analytical results when there's different parameters uh, within such a method. But generally, the method all has a bit of the same uh, line. So these, these are classical plating methods that I'm talking about in this case. So it very much depends what kind of recovery medium you're using that the bacteria grow on and also how long you incubate the plates, for instance. And these are quite detailed parameters that can quietly affect the analytical outcome. So what we did is we used the experience that we already had gained during the milk powder consortium, where we noticed that TSA, so that's triptych soy agar, uh, was actually the best recovery medium. It supports growth of the best variety of bacterial species that are spore formers. We also used some standardized methods like ISO and ICA methods that are already available for quite standard parameters. And then we tested a few things like, okay, when it comes to cocoa powder, it poses some additional challenges like the dark color. You really need to make sure that you distribute the cocoa very homogeneously within the plates. It is not very easily hydratable. So how do we ensure that there is wet heat penetration to the spores everywhere. So we needed to optimize a little bit on what diluent do we use to hydrate the cocoa, make like a slurry. And also how do we add high shear? Which temperature do we need to use? Those kind of parameters we investigated in a little bit more detail. Also, when you're enumerating spores, it's important to realize that different spore formers have different properties when it comes to growth, as well as heat resistance. So investigating total spores, we heated for 10 minutes at 80 degrees, and then we incubated the plates at 55 degrees for thermophilic bacteria and 30 for mesophilic bacteria. And then we also tested heat resistant spores. So these have elevated heat resistance that easily survive 30 minutes at 100 degrees. And again, we incubated at two different temperatures to make sure that we had the widest range of bacterial species uh, enumerated. So once we had that set up, we tested a few of these parameters to see if we saw significant differences. And based on that, we chose what was going to be our so-called consortium method. And then we did the ring test with the cocoa powders that I mentioned previously to see how that worked out. So I guess together that would have taken, I guess, a year. And also to see that, that when you also have the cocoa powder not diluted well enough, we could see an antimicrobial effect. So that was another cocoa-specific property that we saw happening that could really lead to underestimations in your counts on plates. So therefore, the consortium method was optimized again to indicate that you really need to dilute the cocoa to below 5% or 2.5 even, if possible, by using bigger agar plates or by spreading your sample over two separate plates so that the cocoa is diluted. So those are the type of things that we optimized on the method. I admit freely to not knowing a great deal about cocoa powder. Is this something that would be relevant globally? And are there different issues in different countries with temperatures and storage methods and that kind of thing? Yeah, so eventually 
what this method is really aimed for is to make sure that when you are making agreements within the market on how many spores should be or could be present within your ingredient, you really also make agreements on which method to use to actually determine such concentrations because all of these different parameters can have an influence on the numbers that you're getting back. So I guess in that sense, it really helps the global market to have a reference method available that you can always get like, okay, let's use this method. It's been optimized specifically for cocoa powder that poses other challenges than, for instance, milk powder. And to at least get a reliable determination of the concentrations of spores within your ingredient. That does not mean that it solves all issues with spores in the cocoa powder. So the issue that we are still dealing with is that it's unknown what the relationship is between the actual concentrations of spores in cocoa powder and their survival during processing and the actual rate of spoilage of a finished product. So the issues that you could have with spores surviving processing and germinating and growing out in your finished liquid product, that of course can also be very different in different countries or in different conditions. It depends on the product. It depends on where the product is stored. Definitely, if you have higher temperatures, these bacteria like to grow at 30 degrees or a little bit lower, so ambient, but not so much refrigerated, for instance. Yeah, and then you can also have the other ingredients in the products or the packaging or post-processing contamination. Those things are all not included in this. So it's really a method at the first stage to determine microbial quality when it comes to spore formers in a cocoa powder and to reach agreements on what are acceptable concentrations. Because we cannot set specifications to improve, for instance, the preservation of the finished product simply because the correlation is not known. What we can do is offer guidelines on what are generally the concentrations that are found in cocoa powders. So we also executed this method on a wide range of cocoa powders that are commercially available. And that data is also described in the manuscript that we published on what are generally the concentrations that are found. So you can see what stands out and not. So generally, concentrations of spores are quite low in cocoa powder. And, and so what are the implications for, I mean, especially because this is dairy, then for dairy companies, is it yeah. really just to try and minimize waste at the earliest stage possible? Definitely. The bacteria that we found, which is actually in agreement with some other microbial ecology studies that were being performed on cocoa powder in the past, these bacterial species are generally spoilage bacteria. So it's not really a food safety issue that we're dealing with here. It's really on occasion, spoilage issues. It's not that a lot of spoilage is being observed in these products, but occasionally and often in unpredictable manner, and sometimes very difficult to pinpoint where that contamination came from. But definitely it is to do to reduce the spoilage rate and to decrease food waste in that sense. And also to make sure that both ingredient producers and ingredient buyers can be on the same page. So ideally, of course, the cocoa powder buyers would like to have absolutely no spores in the cocoa powder. But it's very clear that that is not possible due to the actual natural fermentation process of the cocoa beans. These spores are there. So how do we determine what concentrations there are and how do we accept which levels do we accept in the market to be present? That's really what the method is for. Is this kind of the end of that now or is there more study needed on this particular area? 
definitely more study needed. So I think what's really helpful is that there's now a reference method available specifically for cocoa powders, also because of these additional challenges that I mentioned. There is, in fact, an ISO workgroup to help standardize microbial detection and enumeration in lots of different foods and ingredients. So we made sure that this workgroup is aware also of the work that we've performed in this consortium. So it would help within the whole food market to reach agreement on that. And then, of course, there's still the question of, okay, so now what is the correlation between the concentration of spores in cocoa powder and the actual rate of spoilage after processing? So that's still an area of research that we're interested in and investigating, also with the current consortium partners, to see whether we can investigate the role of cocoa hydration during processing, for instance, on survival of spores. So it could be that if the cocoa powder is not hydrated well enough, that the spores that are present in the cocoa powder are not inactivated by the heat that is being applied. Because dry heat, they are a lot more resistant against dry heat than they are against wet heat. So full or complete or whatever you can say on that, hydration or wettability of the cocoa particles is quite essential to ensure that your thermal process has the most effective effect on killing the spores. So that is an area of research. And then in addition, there's lots of other food ingredients similar to cocoa powder that pose other issues or maybe other species are involved, like, for instance, the plant-based proteins like soy and pea and almond. So there's definitely also um, still a lot of opportunity to research the spore formers and other microbial quality of those ingredients as well and how to deal with that for risk assessments. Next, we head to northern Utah to talk to Keith Laws, VP of Sales and Marketing at Casper's Ice Cream, about how the coronavirus pandemic has affected the ice cream industry in the U.S. and what Casper's has been doing to respond. Could you first just give me a little bit of background about Casper's Ice Cream? We were founded in 1925. Our manufacturing facility is located on the original farmland that the founder owned, his uh, parents owned, I guess. So we've kind of stuck pretty close to our roots here. We're a third generation family owned still. Our main focus is ice cream novelties. We started with a ice cream on a stick dipped in chocolate and uh, that's what is our main items. And then we transitioned into sandwiches. So novelties are main bread and butter items, but we have moved into doing cups and push-ups and other forms as novelties as well, as well as some uh, half gallon products. Our main brand is a Fat Boy ice cream. Most people know us by that rather than Casper's. And our items are sold across the U.S. Pretty much every state you can find our items. We have three of our own brands, and then we also do a fair amount of Copac for other national brands as well. As, as far as having lots of products and lots of different, you're doing the, the stuff for other companies, is that something that really helps when it comes to being diverse enough to survive things like the pandemic and i was wondering why why ice cream has done so well and how some companies have struggled and others haven't yeah so having copac definitely helps we built a new facility about four years ago so we increased our capacity substantially so we started to focus a little more on some copac business to help kind of fill that capacity for now and that has really 
taken off this year. It's been a 20% of our business, but this year it more than doubled. So it started off rather slow, but as soon as the pandemic hit, the phone's been ringing off the hook. Everybody's in the same boat as far as um, just needing production capacity. So as far as ice cream doing so well during this pandemic, ice cream is a is a comfort food and people have, you know, gravitated toward those, you know, those foods during this uncertain time. And then we went through at the beginning, we went through our stock up period, you know, every all the shelves were bare. So people were basically picking up anything that was on the shelf. So I think all categories were doing very well, you know, through this time. I think the other thing with ice cream is being in the frozen, they're able to take it and they're able to stock it a little bit. It has a long shelf life in their freezers. Is that why some companies have struggled? They just can't meet the demand? In talking with most other manufacturers, we we have uh, relationships with a number of them in the country. And we've talked, you know, kind of what what they're seeing. and, And I think because it's such a cyclical business, most of us stock up, you know, in the springtime or late fall, and we kind of have a safety stock and you're built into it because you know capacity typically during those July, August months, you're not, you can't produce what, you know, the demand is typically. And so you've got this safety stock in there, but everybody ran out of their safety stock so early on that when the real season hit and you had that on top of the pandemic, keeping up with that demand was nearly impossible. And then you had restrictions on employees, how many employees you could have, and people were scared to come to work. And so you lose capacity that way. And so right now, that is the struggle is finding employees and getting the products made. Even if you have line time, you can't get the bodies in to actually produce the products. I was going to ask you if it was just recognizable brands that were being sold during the pandemic, but you said the shelves were bare. So I guess it's just a case of if it was ice cream, it was selling. Yeah, it has been. And it's created, you know, a lot of opportunities that way. You you have retailers that are just looking for anything to fill the shelves and they had promotions planned for displays and things like that. And those companies that had committed to those now can't fill those orders. So they're scrambling to find products. So we actually had an opportunity and we had a product line that we had produced a bunch of items. Um, It didn't have wide distribution and that line actually had some capacity and they came to us and said, do you have anything, you know, what, what do you have that we can put in those doors? And it ended up, you know, giving us nationwide distribution on an item people otherwise wouldn't have seen. So it's created some good opportunities that way. Are you seeing any any different trends within the ice cream purchasing or is it just if you produce it, it'll get bought? There have been. When you look through, pints were really going crazy over the last few years. People are tending to kind of go towards uh, more single serve, um, individually packaged items, especially, you know, when compared to like a half gallon, everybody's up, but we're seeing a little bit uh, larger spikes, I believe. And and it's because of that, there, there's a confidence in having those items, they're individually wrapped, they know they're safe. You don't have multiple people scooping out of the same container and sharing as much. And so I think they're we're seeing some trends in that direction that's really helped novelties jump a little bit more. 
how have you managed to to do reasonably well out of this? I guess when I was first contacted about this, it, it was mentioning that a lot of companies are struggling, but you seem to be doing okay. Where's that difference lie? I think a lot of it has to do with where we're located. We're in a very rural area, so we haven't been affected as much by the pandemic as a lot of other manufacturers have. We weren't ever um, restricted on the number of people that we could have within our facility. We obviously took it very seriously, uh, made sure that everybody was wearing you know, proper protection and socially distancing as much as possible. But because of our rural location, we, we were able to keep running at a pretty heavy pace. Like I said, the thing we're struggling with right now is, is actually our valley was listed in a news article as having the lowest unemployment rate in the country. So a lot of places in the country are dealing with massive unemployment rates. We're down in the mid 2% range uh, for our area. So finding people to come in has really been the struggle. But we've been able to keep going pretty good. But like we're like everyone else. We run out of safety stock. And now we're just trying to figure out which items you know have the highest demand and keep running those as much as possible. And what do you think other companies can do to capitalize on the upswing in ice cream? Obviously, it's difficult if if you have staffing issues or you're in an area that's got massive issues with coronavirus. But how do companies capitalize on some of the opportunities? Well, what they're doing now, like I said, was is they're focusing their production on those items that are in widest distribution and highest demand. We've heard a number of manufacturers who, you know, they may manufacture 30 SKUs, but they're saying with what we're limited to, we can only focus on the top 10 to be the most efficient, to get the most product out to the consumers. It's really kind of where everybody's doing. They're just trying to hold on and just get as much product out onto the shelves as possible. And are retailers struggling with this as well, or is it really just everybody's having a hard time? I guess. Yeah, everybody is. I mean, the the kinds of growth that people are seeing is it's just unprecedented. When I, you know, you start looking at the data, you're seeing growth in the high twenty percent range or whatever. But that's you know overall for us, we're seeing demand that's for the last thirteen weeks that's forty percent over last year. And the surprising thing is okay, if we can get to September, we can kind of get our feet under us. That's typically when the season slows down. But the last four weeks have actually shown an increase like over 60%. So it doesn't seem to be slowing down quite as quickly as we'd kind of hoped. You know, not that you want sales to go down, but it's a real strain on relationships when you can't meet orders and things like that. And the retailers, they're pressuring, you know, the manufacturers to make sure that their shelves are in stock so that their customers are happy. And so I think it creates a lot of issues all around. Obviously, this is going to pass eventually, but do you think that numbers will stay higher than pre-coronavirus levels? I believe they will. I think that you're seeing a real shift in people's habits. People are, they're rediscovering, you know, eating at home, being with family a little bit, and they're trying products that they wouldn't have otherwise tried. And hopefully that means, you know, you're picking up, you know, loyal customers, you know, that they'll continue to buy your products after. So I do think that you will have a good portion, you know, the people that, you know, they create these new habits and they find that they enjoy cooking at home or doing that rather than going out and things. So I do think you will have some upticks that will remain after the crisis is over.
Are you seeing any changes in terms of online? Are you able to tap into the online, which seems to be booming as well? Yeah, we've really started to focus on, you know, companies like partnering with an Instacart or that do grocery delivery or with the uh, retailers in their curbside pickup and their online ordering and putting ads, you know, focusing on getting ads and stuff in front of the consumer through those channels where they hadn't really been a focus. Ice cream is hard, you know, where it's frozen to try it, you know, it, it always seems counterintuitive, you know, to put that in delivery with just, you know, somebody's car, but you have to start to trust that, you know, the, the systems are in place, that those products are making it to the end user in good condition. And I think that those are things you're going to see increase. They're showing that people are making fewer trips to the grocery store where they might've gone, you know, two or three times a week. They're only going once a week and they're creating their lists ahead of time so they can go in and they can get out. Well, that means that probably fewer impulse buys are happening. So it's really important to try to get your products in front of your consumers before they get to the grocery store. So they already have your items on the list. They know what they're going to go and they're going to go get your items. So finding those avenues to advertise to them, whether it's online or if they're creating their lists on the retailer's website or however they're doing that is getting your products in front of them so they can decide that they're going to be picking up your products before they even get to the grocery store. Has the situation kind of curtailed new product development? Are companies just really concentrating on what they can get out? As far as production goes, yes. You're focusing on on your top items. We actually launched one of our brands this year, and it really ended up being a hard launch. A lot of retailers reset their stores right at the time that this virus started biking and making the news. And so they put all those things on hold. So they they had their sets and you were told, okay, we're going to put your new items in. But then they decided, you know what, it's not safe to have our employees in there doing that. So we're just going to leave our sets the way they are. So we didn't get a lot of distribution on those items that we had hoped for. So for us, we're going to basically look at this next year as a reset. And we're going to be relaunching those new items that we had. And so we'll add one or two new items this coming year, but we're mainly looking at almost like a redo for this next year for that new brand. But I don't think innovation is going to be stifled in any way by it. I think things will continue. The The novelty category traditionally is one where people are coming up with new ideas all the time. And now it's to Ireland and France to chat with two people from Kerry, Celia Ride, Senior Technologist, and Yanka Reka, Strategic Marketeer for Beverages with Kerry Europe and Russia. The company has just launched a pretty impressive ebook about trends in beverages, and the first person we will hear from in the interview, just so you can tell them apart, is Yanka. I read the ebook. It's really detailed. I wonder if you could tell me why first you developed the publication and who it's aimed towards, sort of the, the companies that you're targeting with this and whether it's a global initiative or just within a specific region. So the focus of the ebook is uh, really Europe and Russia. 
geographically and we are aiming uh, towards both the food service and uh, retail beverage manufacturers and brand owners. And really, I guess in terms of what categories we are looking into, we really wanted to create a material that is useful for tea, coffee, cocoa manufacturers, refreshing beverage manufacturers, and nutritional beverage manufacturers, as well as dairy beverage manufacturers or alternative dairy beverage manufacturers. We really try to create something that uh, has a little bit of everything for all these categories, because we see that functionality is really something on the rise. (laughs) I guess the only category where it hasn't really appeared yet, at least in Europe, is alcohol. But uh, who knows what the future brings. So we consider it to be very important to talk to these uh, manufacturers and also in some way to showcase the wide range of capabilities that Kerry has in this space from taste modulation, taste masking, through to functional ingredients until our uh, healthy halo botanica range. And how has this sector changed and grown in the past few years? I think from the publication, it's quite clear that it's moved a long way. Celia, do you want to take this one? Yes, I would say that the functional beverage category is very dynamic. Initially, it was very specific to niche market, uh, to very sportive and uh, athletes looking for performance in very specific formats like protein shakes or bars. But now I would say with the growing awareness of the public on the impact of food on their health and wellness, it's reaching a lot broader audience. So now I would say all the healthy enthusiastic would be interested to consume from a daily routine some uh, more healthy ingredients, more healthy products for a longer term as well. So we could target healthy agers, younger people, uh, millennials, and from all the categories. Now it's not those very specific formats. It's a lot broader avenue for all the beverage. So We're looking at functional waters, juices, tea, coffee, really a lot broader application range. Building on what Celia said, that uh, I guess the quality of these products and really the expectation of taste drove up together along with the trend and along with with new products being launched and new formats being launched. That, uh, you know, we see the Halo Top ice cream that uh, we are interested in, of course, how many grams of protein is in the product, but we we are most driven by the taste. I hate to mention coronavirus because it seems to be absolutely everywhere at the moment, unfortunately, but has that affected people's perceptions of functional beverages and the demand for functional beverages, do you think? Yeah, for functional beverages was raising already before the crisis. But since the crisis, we see a growing demand into a bit more specific and recognized health claims. So now customers are looking for more uh, healthy uh, products to improve their daily routines. And immune health is definitely coming on the top of the concerns. I would say that following the crisis as well, the conscious of the environment rose in the in the consumer. So we see a, a very big increasing of the demand for vegan alternatives. And this is touching all the different uh, applications from milk to fermented uh, like yogurt or desserts. So that category on the vegan also is booming. And I think also there's this area around how people, because of Corona, of course, are much more worried about their health. 
and they try to, of course, take all kinds of supplements. But we recently looked at a product around refreshing beverages and we, we saw emerging this trend around the pill fatigue that really we are sitting at home and we have all these little tubs of pills to pop in. This is vitamin C, this is B complex, this is magnesium. And we see that it's better to take our nutrients from food and beverages. So I guess really where we formulate with immunity, immunity claims or digestive health claims, and we put these functional ingredients into beverage products, there is an increasing demand as people are maybe stepping away from pills to a more perceivedly nutritional and natural way of getting their nutrients in. As I kind of mentioned at the beginning, the ebook is extremely detailed. There's an awful lot of work in there. It's a really impressive document, actually. There's a lot of market research gone into it. What do you see as the main consumer perceptions of and requirements for functional beverages? I think three key things I would really mention and that we see coming through in almost all categories is one, the um, credibility of the functional ingredients that go into these beverages. So we see that really there is a high demand for functional ingredients that are science-backed. We have a full range of scientists. We work very close together with the Kerry uh, Nutrition Institute. We have an applied health and nutrition uh, department and they are constantly working on having a scientific studies about our functional ingredients, really building credibility there. Then the second one I would say is really around taste and flavor and modulation. And Celia definitely can talk more about the challenges of bringing functional ingredients into any product. But when we talk about beverages, of course, we have a certain expectation around how it's going to feel like, how it's going to taste like, and really masking those off notes, using the right flavors to create a pleasant consumption experience. And thirdly, I guess the sustainability is something that is worth mentioning because it's really something that is underpinning everything we do at Kerry. And we see that there is a huge pool from the side of consumers that they look for products that are sustainably sourced, that have the credentials. And even when we look at our dairy-based ingredients, we really put a great emphasis on having a range that is grass-fed proteins or really products that have the sustainability credentials to stand the test on the market. You mentioned sustainability there. Do you think that because of the coronavirus pandemic that the sustainability in people's minds has maybe been pushed back a little bit? I think actually it became even more important. So I think uh, with sustainability, one big thing is that in some geographical locations, maybe the outcomes of uh, climate change are not as evident as in some other places or other parts of the world. And I think uh, a crisis like corona really brings issues home people start to think, okay, like how does consumption pattern in a country very far away can impact my life? And it, Corona, I think, really made it real for many people that, yes, there are small things we can do and they can have a ripple down effect on the whole globe. And this can, of course, be negative, but it can also be positive. And I think that people became much more open to see what can I do? What can, well, how can I change my life to make sure that we're all actually better off? Definitely, we have more and more uh, consumer demand in terms of sustainability from all our ingredients, from flavors to proteins. So that's definitely something the end consumer is more sensitive to, like, let's say, play for the environment, for the planet, and they feel more uh, that it's a more responsible purchase. So we feel more and more demands on communicating on that. And that's what we are also uh, addressing for our own ingredients to support our customer in this field. And what kind of trends or future products do you see in this space? And and I assume that would cover both dairy and plant-based. 
Yes, absolutely. So plant-based products are increasing a lot. Now you can see on the aisle, it's changing every day. There is launched very, very regularly. And now we are going beyond the simple vegan milks. We are going to the fermented category, to the dessert category. And now consumers are expecting from, from the vegan uh, area as much indulgence and as much innovation than we can see in the dairy space. So now the challenge is very dual for those applications because they have to taste good, be innovative, and to address all the challenges that are coming with the vegan formulations. And that's why we are really putting a lot of effort in helping our consumers with our modulation range of flavors and also our botanical extracts that can bring some more healthy halo to the marketplace because consumers are a lot more in demands of more exotic taste. So for that vegan sector, I would say that there is loads of challenges and a lot of uh, exciting uh, launches to come. It seems that while there are more plant-based launches taking place, that now there is an increased expectation of what those products should contain and also an increased emphasis on better taste and better nutrition, that kind of thing. You asked around Corona and how people change it. And just like a little personal experience that I see many of us are working from home. We feel actually that we have more control over how we consume. We are much less on the go. And uh, well, just based on really Instagram and uh, I don't know if you know the Transporter tool of Carrie. It's a trend prediction tool. So I see that people became much more experiential with how they eat and more and more people are actually trying vegan meals or plant-based diets just simply because they have time to develop new skills in how to prepare delicious, good-tasting plant-based meals. Yeah, as you said, now it goes even beyond uh, just the vegan consumers. It really touched all the flexitarian because we see even people that would uh, consume meat and consume dairy that just for discovering new tastes, just for having a little new experience, would try a, a vegan product for the innovation interest. So uh, definitely that is also a, a big market and growing days after days. Huh? What kind of solutions do you have that address all of these issues and all of these potential new products in the beverage space? with uh, our vegan protein, because as you said, now vegan products have to have the same nutritionals than dairy products. And for that, the enrichment is protein is uh, absolutely key. And with our broad range of vegan protein, we can really address all the different demands from different applications, from neutral pH to low pH beverages, and with a very broad ranges of uh, inclusions. So that's, I would say, very good for the muscle health sector. But also on the immunity and the digestive health carry as really two key ingredients there, I would say part of the wellmune, which is our beta-glucan, which is a, a well-documented with loads of scientific studies ingredients that would improve the general immune health overall physical states, reduce the stress of people, but also on the digestive health sector with our Ganidin BC30, which is uh, our sport-forming probiotic that can be applied to pasteurized beverages for digestive, immune health, protein utilization, improvement, also backed up with many scientific studies. And that is really key now uh, to be used into, uh, into beverages as a new area for improving digestive health with probiotic and prebiotic. We are very used to 
dairy, such as yogurt, bringing probiotic for intakes to consumer. And this is very new, bringing this to beverages and to a lot of other range of applications. And next to, of course, our application expertise, which is our key pillar, we have other departments working on bringing in the, the knowledge and the insights around innovations that we should be keeping in mind. So I mentioned before the Transporter tool, which was recently launched in Kerry in the last one year, that we are really using to track and trace trends that are emerging on social media and on the internet and trying to bring them in-house and to our customers to see, okay, where is the industry going? What are the trends that are emerging, will they actually become something mainstream or or stay uh, more niche? So we have this tool to really monitor what's coming. Then we also have uh, innovation programs uh, running in Kerry. I don't know if you heard about the Eat the Streets program, which is really our own innovation program to discover what's out there on the market and how can we develop the products of customers into something that is slightly better on taste or on flavor, really bringing an innovation from all around the globe and see how we can evolve the products further. Then we also have a great uh, regulatory team. I think around functional beverages, regulatory claims and labeling is something that is highly different across all continents, all countries. And uh, we have a whole regulatory team with the the expertise on really the latest updates on labeling requirement because it's also changing almost every year, every month, what is allowed to be on the label and what is not allowed to be on the label. So we have a whole department looking after that segment. Kind of backtracking a little bit, you mentioned all of the ways that you work with your customers for them to provide products for consumers. At what stages of development are you able to help? Can you start right from the beginning if somebody comes to you with just an idea and get them right the way through to the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. So as Yanka mentioned, we have very powerful tool within Kerry uh, and our marketing team to explore the marketplace and innovate on the marketplace. So we can go to our consumers with very innovative presentation of what is going to be the innovation in 2025, for example. So really helping them from ideation until production. Because in the parallel of the marketing team, after that, we have a very strong application team and expertise in-house where we can help our consumers formulating recipes from the lab until the industrial plan. So we have also a very good um, equipment in terms of uh, industrial machine and uh, can replicate very easily our customers' processes in-house. So really to be able to implement our ingredients smoothly until their production facilities. And I would say that lastly, we also have a big expertise into uh, sensory. Thanks to our sensory department, uh, with who we can uh, support our consumers with uh, their studies, doing focus groups, doing some profiling. If we have to rate a little bit more precisely a product to improve the taste, for example, that's something that is very common. So I would say we offer really a full package from the innovation until the, the production and the promotion on the market. And I guess just one more point that Kerry is also a very global organization. So we have uh, offices uh, across the Americas, across Asia, in uh, Africa as well. And uh, even within Europe, uh, we have all these uh, the international teams that work on these projects. So we really can bring in different perspectives from around Europe and from around the globe. And lastly, could you give me a little bit more details about the ebook and where people can get it? 
yeah, so our ebook really covers upcoming trends, flavor trends, different uh, functional areas, protein, immunity, digestive health uh, within that uh, cultures and fibers. So it is really a very interesting and great tool that summarizes what's happening on the market. So I highly recommend read and the download. And of course, if, uh, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to us, to our colleagues, and we are happy to, to get in touch. And it's available directly from the website? Exactly, yes. And now it's back to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. Butter continued to slide uh, this week in futures, which was in parallel really with what was happening on the physical market. And also with cream taking a big hit, cream trading as low as 41.50 this week. A lot of it, I think, was due to the fact that people felt their sales books were quiet for quarter four and felt when people would come back from holidays after the end of August uh, would be looking to lock up supply. But that didn't happen for the first couple of weeks of September. And as a result, people felt that quarter four purchasing that they were expecting wasn't going to happen. So we had September butter was down about 30 euros to the 34.30 level. Quarter four was trading around 33.90, down about 35 euros on the week. Quarter one was down more substantially around down 90 euros to 33.60 level. Quarter two took a bigger hit down about 130 euros to the 33.70 level. Quarter three was down about 100 euros, 3500 level. Skim milk powder, on the other hand, seemed to be continued to be buoyed up um, since the uh, GDT skim milk powder auction last week. September remained flat around 21.75 level, but quarter four was up around 40 euros to the 22.20 level. Quarter one was up around 30 euros to the 22.40 level. About the same for quarter two and quarter three, which were trading around 22.60 and 22.80 level, respectively. We continue to remain the same, trading around the 7.40 level in quarter one. That's great. Thank you, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that will do it for another podcast. Just one more left in September and I won't give away who's on the show because I'm not sure which ones I'm going to use yet as there are quite a few to choose from. Too many choices, but a good problem to have. So until next time, I hope you have a great week. Stay safe, take care. And as always, wherever you are, thanks for listening.